0: Hello from the ABA Annual Meeting 2018 in Chicago, Illinois. I'm Leanne Jackson with the ABA Journal. And I'm Dave Preble. And we are on the road with Legal Talk Network. And we're back thank you so much for joining us on the road. It's a pleasure to be here. And today we are talking about opioids and the opioid epidemic. Um, I'm here with Dave Preble. And if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. You were just in a panel on
1: opioids, but give us a bit about your background. Where do you work and what do you do? Sure. I'm the senior vice president of the Practice Institute at the American Dental Association. And um, of course, on the panel, there were some other others individuals as well. But dentists are part of the problem and solution. And so that's why my part of what we're talking about is what prescribers can do to reduce the number of opioids out there. Okay.
0: Now, the opioid epidemic has gained a lot of attention recently. I actually just wrote a feature article on it for the ABA Journal in the June issue. I'd been talking to a lot of lawyers, um, some people who are in the uh, rehabilitation field. I didn't talk to that many practitioners, medical or dental practitioners. Now, when you talk about, I mean, you're with um, the American Dental Association or you're, you're involved at that. Can you tell me a little bit about how dentists are potentially overprescribing or how you
1: feel, what you feel the intervention needs to be sure. for that? Sure. Well, for the most part in dentistry, what we deal with is short-duration acute pain. And most of the studies have been done about longer-term chronic pain. So the prescribing for acute pain has just been what they were taught in dental school and commonly the drugs of choice were opioids in the past. But the more recent evidence is that non-opioid medications are just as effective or more effective than opioids in most cases for a short-duration acute pain, and that's what we are educating the profession about right now. So are we seeing then dentists instead of
0: Tylenol with codeine uh, saying just take some Aleve or ibuprofen, like what are we talking about specifically?
1: Well, that is correct, that things like ibuprofen um, in higher doses, so 800 milligram doses, um, highly effective. Using that in combination with some drugs like acetaminophen, your Tylenols, changes the pathway of pain management so it becomes as effective for acute pain. There are some pains because, again, pharmacologically you you have different pathways of pain. There are some pains that respond best to opioids. But what we're finding is the evidence is that opioids in very, very small doses combined with those larger doses of the non-opioids is vastly more effective than opioids alone, even vastly more effective than, again, your, your Tylenol number three, whatever. So we're able to educate the profession to bring down that level of prescribing to not only very, very small doses of opioids when... They're necessary, which is... Like a root canal. <laughs> Maybe a root canal. Potentially. Like, but mm-hmm. again, even for a root canal, potentially you need no opioid at all. So vastly you, you need none. But if you do, it would be a very small dose for a very small number of pills.
0: Well, the marketing and lobbying by the um, you know pharmaceutical industry encouraged sort of unlimited quantities. I mean, it, it, they never said this is addictive or put a cap on it. So it was kind of like, do you need... You know, do you need some medication? And it was just prescribed and nobody thought about the consequences. So now it's interesting that a lot of um, practitioners are just thinking about how do we need to prescribe this? That's because if you look abroad, if you look in Europe and other countries, they don't even prescribe these at all. You right. could go in. I read an article about someone who went in for a hysterectomy
1: and they're like, take some ibuprofen later. You'll be fine. <laughs> right. And part of the issue when it comes to the prescribers is, one, drug companies telling doctors that these are not addictive or things. And this has been well documented in the legal cases that have that have come forward. But it's also as a society, we've thought about not only do we need to manage pain to a tolerable level, but doctors have been told for years that you need to eliminate pain altogether. And we have to also manage patient expectations that a minor amount of pain that enables you to continue your daily life but is is okay whereas the complete elimination of pain and quite frankly even the euphoric elimination of pain is not necessary that's come to be an expectation in american culture
0: that pain should be eliminated that it's not just uncomfortable it's inconvenient and they want it gone and a lot of a lot of patients do come to doctors asking for that so how do you how do doctors then come back and 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 try to say you know like the american pain association i believe also is part is part of this in terms of figuring out that balance between patient expectations and doctors who are
1: put on the spot right we are trying to figure that out as as the multi-professions the pain has become like the fifth vital sign so doctors were held accountable for eliminating pain, and that is part of the culture that needs to change too. But patients who actually come with drug-seeking behavior are usually either relatively easy to identify or with the help of PDMPs, which are prescription drug monitoring programs, which are in the different states, where the doctors can access the prescription history for a patient and get an idea of whether or not this is the, the right patient to be prescribing something like an opioid.
0: Are dentists worried about any legal exposure or what are you getting from um, practitioners in the field about what should I do about, about prescribing and patients who are demanding certain drugs and maybe they don't have a history that they can access? Are they worried about the legal effects personally?
1: Not really very much. The profession is already responding very well to the education that we're putting out there that their prescribing behavior should be more along the lines of the evidence. And one of the things that is becoming that we are becoming much more aware of is to identify that kind of drug-seeking behavior, even without a prescription drug monitoring program report, and tailor what you're looking to do To what's best for the patient and best for the patient doesn't necessarily mean the elimination of pain it also means not feeding into a problem that the patient may have what was the consensus during the presentation that you had
0: earlier here at the annual meeting was that was there a lot of discussion or questions related to legal issues
1: was it medical prescribing so a, a lot of it focused on the medical prescribing but we really feel like that's a part of the problem that we can get under control with with education Obviously, there's more to this problem than just the prescription aspect of it. There's also the aspect of that this is we have an increase in this country of addictive behavior. And that is a more difficult problem. Also, when you get outside the realm of dentistry into the chronic pain realm, that's more difficult too. So how do you, how do you deal with those kinds of things that dentists don't commonly have to deal with? Um, There was an interesting part of the panel discussion too from a a former prosecutor who successfully changed the way that they dealt with non-violent drug offenses rather than incarceration, moving them into treatment programs and the consensus was that this was a really, really good idea because you really want to try to help people get into a different way of life rather than incarcerate them, which which does nothing to treat the problem. Another aspect that was interesting is the, to make the opioid reversal drugs, naloxone or Narcan, uh, readily available, not only as kind of an open prescription in pharmacies, but with law enforcement and fire departments and, and whatever else, because this is potentially the ability to save lives right there on the spot get those people into treatment who then not only later on can be not only become productive members of society but often become part of the treatment workforce. They change from being one of the needing treatment to those that help others and and so that you know the the stigma that's attached to drug addiction starts to become less of a problem when you start to decriminalize this idea as long as it's not involved with obviously some sort of violent or other criminal behavior other than just the drug use. You
0: know, a lot of jurisdictions are looking at different ways, um, different diversions, I, I think, um, to, uh, to take especially with, as soon as uh, people who are addicted to opioids get to court to intervene and get them into treatment. And like you said, then they do become advocates for um, a better lifestyle and in a different way
1: and and we have to understand too that the treatment is not just a a two-week thing or a 30-day thing and then you put them back out on the street that would be highly ineffective i mean i'm not an addiction specialist but being the point person for this particular issue at the ada i run into a lot of addiction specialists and they say often it's multiple times and multiple treatment interventions before you actually get someone to to actually be cured, if there is such a thing as that. And I think we have to understand that as a society as well.
0: Yeah, I visited a, um, a uh, graduation ceremony from a, a court in, um, in Cleveland, Ohio, where they had done a diversion program for addicts. But that that was, uh, I think it was like a year and a half, a lot of them were in this program. And of course, a lot of people do fail and relapse because it's also environmental. Or environmental. It's who you're around and it's um, obviously the hold of the drug. So it is a difficult process, but a lot of courts are looking at this um, because it, there's not a lot of options. You can't just fill prisons and jails with people who have opioid problems.
1: Right. And that was one of the, one of the panelists also made the point that incarceration is more expensive than treatment. So in those jurisdictions where they say, well, we don't have enough treatment programs, you can actually look at where are you putting your resources. If you're putting your resources into incarceration, you could divert some of those resources to increase your level of treatment programs and save money.
0: Yeah, a lot, of, uh, a lot of cities and uh, counties are looking for um, federal dollars, governmental dollars of some sort to increase beds and immediate. because a lot of times it is how quickly you can divert somebody um, to a treatment bed, otherwise they are going to be sent to jails. And it's always more expensive. That's the incarceration problem we have in the United States. It's um, often more expensive to house people in prison than it is to actually try to rehabilitate whether it's criminal behavior or drug treatment. Right. And that was my little soapbox on that. <laughs> but um, but one thing I found also, and you know, you mentioned it's interesting that uh, you know small amounts of opioids for certain um, for certain medical problems are appropriate. And I found a lot of people I know like you know just. P- Friends, people who don't obviously have addiction problems, really are recoiling at any doctor who's like, Would you, you know, you broke your arm? Would you like some hydrocodone? And they're just like, No, I don't want to become an addict.
1: Well, I find that to be very encouraging that we're actually doing a good job. The word is out. The word is out there. Right, of changing patient expectations because that's part of this equation.
0: But do you feel like, are we changing the right patient's expectations? I think there's a lot of people who are actually in the pain management field who get a little bit up in arms saying, You know, now opioids have been demonized completely. And obviously, if, you're, if you are a cancer patient or, you know, my mother has been on tramadol probably for decades and um, different types of opioid medications that in the right circumstance, they are helpful. Or obviously, if you, if you need morphine, if you're having a surgery, just different things. So is there a balance to where now people are completely or maybe that's necessary in order to rectify the imbalance where people expect this, but to put it back in the proper what, it's copper box?
1: Correct. And this is where when you have a whole medical workforce that is becoming much more educated about what we can do to not have these medications in any more patients that need it, at that point you start trusting your, your medical professionals to have some judgment on when that's really needed and when it's not.
0: So yeah, it's interesting. It does start, I think, at the doctors are not at the bottom, but it starts at the at the prescribing level, where you recalibrate what doctors think is what the medical professional, medical and dental professions think or know is appropriate, or figure out figure out what's appropriate, and then you are passing it down to the or passing it up to the right, patients. Right, and we
1: have to also understand that the prescription aspect of this opioid epidemic is only one facet. Obviously, now we're up against even a much more serious problem, which is the synthetic fentanyl, which is highly dangerous, causing much, much more death and readily available. So without any prescriptions.
0: Oh, exactly. You know,
1: so we, you know, we as doctors, of course, take our responsibility very seriously to not put more opioids into patients' hands than is necessary, to not give opioids to patients who don't need opioids at all. But there are other aspects of this problem that, that's, that's not going to cure it right there and then. And I'm glad you brought that up
0: because I think, you know, you can't minimize how many people who have, especially people with chronic pain um, a lot of times that's where opioid addiction can take hold, and then a lot of times young people who are just being recreational, the same people who might be trying marijuana, go in the grandmother's closet and medicine closet and maybe take her opioids, that sort of thing, or people on chronic pain can get addicted, but and you can't minimize that. But at the same time, there are people who are just kind of going straight to heroin, or, and that's out there. Like maybe opioids is one way they can get a high. Maybe they can get that from a doctor, which is where you have to cap the prescriptions that are out there, period. Right. But that is actually just an addictive, an addiction where whether they got it from the medicine cabinet, maybe they're now going to go out in the streets and try to get it, and then the danger of fentanyl and, and carfentanil and these um, these other uh, drugs coming out of China or wherever else that are being mixed with heroin. Right. So and there's that,
1: that aspect, and that's the thing too is when you talk about the getting the these prescriptions from the medicine cabinet, that is what we're trying to reduce. Is that if you keep the dosages of opioids to only when necessary and only as long as necessary then there's not a lot left in the medicine cabinet exactly and we consider it to be part of our obligation too to instruct patients and teach patients about the safe storage and disposal of any leftover medications that's part of it too but again the whole prescription drug part is one aspect of this. There's there's certainly more to this problem than just that.
0: Yeah, exactly. And to your point about the, the medicine cabinets, I mean, um, and the safe disposal, uh, you know, back when it, they, you know, they were flowing like candy, when, when hydrocodone and, and codeine before this problem really got grabbed national attention. I mean, full disclosure, I have drawers full of, you know, broken arms, broken, you know, from broken bone, whatever. I don't even know what drawers of. <laughs> which I haven't safely disposed, I guess, but I don't have anyone <laughs> trying to steal my my uh, opioids. But just, you know, you keep the, the prescription bottles. I was like moving and I was, I had dozens of bottles of this because it was just given out like, oh, do you need a 30, 60 day? And this goes to the whole thing about, and someone recently told me a doctor gave them a 60 day prescription for something small, which I was surprised about because a lot have learned.
1: Now that's the kind of prescribing behavior we're trying to change.
0: Exactly. Because then, like you said, people who shouldn't be going and stealing or looking in their families' medicine cabinets, they see that. It's the reduction of the supply that's out there because it was, and that's what these lawsuits are about that you touched upon that were in the presentation earlier, the flood of these drugs that the, um, the pharmaceutical industry and, and doctors and doctors who shouldn't have been and knew they shouldn't have been allowed into the streets and that are still out there for people to um, sell or snatch up, that kind of thing, so... Was well, there anything I haven't asked you about this that was covered in the presentation, or that you think is important for the listening audience to know about um, about the opioid
1: epidemic? I think we pretty much covered everything. I <laughs> think obviously the the discussion was a an hour and a half at the panel. So it was maybe a little more in depth, but I think we hit all the high points. Let me ask you just a, a quick final question then about um, one final question about the
0: panel and what, you, what the American Dental Association is doing. And you mentioned education. Is there some sort of concerted effort to for programming or some sort of literature that's going out there to members about this issue?
1: Yes. When, well, as the ADA, we're putting out information and we have continuing education available that addresses this directly. But we've also just recently passed bold policy supporting mandatory continuing education for relicensure that would, you know, instead of it being just a voluntary um, aspect of doctors deciding to take this education, that they actually must. And, you know, mandating particular kinds of education is not usually what professional associations do, but in this case, we made an exception.
0: Well, that's a bold and important move, so I'm glad I asked you that question. And before we do completely close it out today, I do have one more question for you. If our listeners would like to follow up and find out more um, about what the ADA is doing and about this issue generally, how can they reach you?
1: Sure. Best way is email. My email address is prebled, which is P-R-E-B-L-E-D, at ADA.org. Great. Thank you so much.
0: And we have reached the end of the road for today's episode. I want to thank Dave Preble for joining us today and also thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. And we will see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk
1: Network. Consult a lawyer.